Welcome back to another episode of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokwai, and the voices I am seeking may have never been heard before, but their stories deserve to be told. What is a Desi Woman? She is a dynamic, fearless, and strong woman. She is your mother, your grandmother, your daughter, your sister. She is every one of us who is on an endless pursuit of self-empowerment and fulfillment. I am Sonia Gokhlai, and I am a Desi Woman. Hello, and welcome to another edition of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokhlai, and today we are so excited to be joined once again by Dr. Usha Tamala Nara. Usha is a professor of counseling, developmental, and educational psychology at Boston College, and she's also a licensed psychologist with a private practice in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Her areas of research and clinical expertise include trauma and mental health among immigrant communities, South Asian American and Asian American psychology, and cultural competence and psychotherapy practices. Usha, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sonia. It's great to be here. Well, it is always such a distinct pleasure to have you here. And, you know, the basis of our conversation today is actually from a an academic publication that you authored in 2001 entitled Asian Trauma Survivors, Immigration, Identity, Loss, and Recovery. And what was so fascinating to me as I read this is it really is timeless in some respects in terms of the issues it covers about our diaspora and as well those from the Asian background, culture, and diaspora. And I think it sets a great dialogue for us to proceed. And so, you know, just absolutely phenomenal work you're doing. And I really wish we could clone you <laughs> because there's not enough. And and I guess, you know, if you could speak to that a bit more, like what are the deficits, I guess, in getting those from our diaspora into the field of psychology? And yeah. what are the barriers to that? Yeah, I think, well, certainly I can speak from my own personal experience. When I had thought about studying psychology as an undergraduate student, it was largely unknown within our communities what a psychologist might do or somebody who studies psychology, what they end up doing. And so there was a lot of unknown for me personally, but also certainly within my family. And initially, um, my own family were sort of like, well, do you want to become a psychiatrist and go to medical school? And um, and <laughs> yeah. so, because that was the most relatable thing in their minds. And I told them, no, I actually want to do research and I want to get my PhD. And, and so there was a lot of education that I had to sort of, you know, do for myself, but also for my family. And then, you know, from there on, they were supportive. But I think there's in our communities, there tend to be certain types of fields that are more familiar or even more acceptable for people to pursue. And so my profession is still something that's relatively new. Although these days I see more and more South Asians, particularly South Asian women, pursuing mental health professions and uh, many of whom pursue graduate degrees in psychology. 
That is wonderful because boy, and we'll get into a lot of these questions. And I have to say that your podcast, which we did as a follow up to the Indian matchmaking show, which has been such uh-huh. a big hit, is the most downloaded of all of my podcast episodes. And I, I'm not uh-huh. surprised because it's just been such a joy and pleasure to meet you. One of the finest individuals I've ever met on a personal note, but also uh-huh. professionally, you're just so well versed in speaking to a lot of the issues that we face, both as men and women, whether it's contemplating marriage or throughout the course of our lives, really. And so, you know, as as we dive into some of these questions, I think I will just start that basically when an individual from an Asian culture relocates to the U.S., that person may be faced with enormous conflict and loss surrounding the notion of separation. And and especially if we focus on Asian Indians and the majority practice Hinduism, which I thought is a great point that you bring up in the paper. It is an underlying premise to a lot of how we're raised. And and you connected it beautifully because you indicate that it's a philosophy which really permeates the emotional life of many Indians, regardless of whether or not they overtly practice traditional Hindu religious beliefs. And according to Hindu scriptures, there are no beginnings and no endings in life. And so, and there's this great emphasis on selfless service to others. And it's characterized by an emphasis on group needs as the cultural idea, ideal rather, and a belief in the omnipotence of the group. And so if you want to speak to that just a bit and sort of how that presents itself in some of the populations that you see. Yes. So as you said, there there is really an inextricable tie between Hindu philosophy and and culture. So it's really hard to say what's Indian culture and what what is a particular religious philosophy because they tend to be intertwined. Whether you're a Hindu or a Muslim or a Sikh or a Jain, there are philosophies that are intertwined with each of the person's culture, which then we bring with us to the United States or another country that we might be migrating to. So there's a way in which we can't really separate out these religious philosophies and beliefs from what we see as a family culture or the culture of a community in the diaspora. And one of the things that comes up, I think, pretty frequently in the work that I do with my Indian clients or patients in my practice is this kind of attempt to reconcile some of the cultural differences that people experience in Indian society within their families and what they experience outside their homes, such as in sort of more mainstream circles in the United States. So one aspect that comes up a great deal is this um, issue around separation and individuation. So in Western Euro-American psychology, there's an emphasis on the ability to separate and individuate yourself from your families and from your community. So what that means is that typically around the time that one leaves home, maybe around 18, 19, 20, in young adulthood, that a person comes to make decisions that are fairly independent of their family, that they start to develop their own interests outside their family, their own viewpoints outside their family and which then become consolidated and you're kind of expected and seen as healthier if you're able to kind of go with what you think is the priority as a personal priority, an individual priority. 
And this stands directly in contrast with what's valued in Indian society and certainly among Indian Americans as well, particularly in immigrant families, where the expectation is that, in fact, a person, as they become older into adulthood, that they are consulting with family members around important decisions like who they might date or the career that they might pursue, who they interact with and how they how they live their life. And so that is seen as a healthier way of living from an Indian perspective. So even the way that we consider, you know, what might be healthy or less healthy or unhealthy, those actually depend a great deal on how we conceptualize this idea of separation. So another term that's used to describe, I think, more accurately, the Indian perspective is the concept of interdependence. So rather than individuation, that we think of interdependence as as a way in which we are connected with families, with family members, with community members, and they we rely on them emotionally and they rely on us. So there's this kind of mutuality from the Indian perspective. But as you can see, these are really they can present conflicts for people in terms of how do you negotiate that? What are my needs versus the needs of a broader group or family or community? So this is something that comes up all the time. Absolutely. And one of the um, statements or, or sentences in the paper, which I really, really found to be pretty profound is, in many parts of India, it is common to find that the front door to the family house is closed. But within the home, all of the doors to the individual rooms are often kept open. And and this is so absolutely true. These realities make for a very different perspective on oneself in in relation to the world. And it's such a profound juxtaposition um, of our realities as Indians. We have no boundaries in our families, Mm -hmm. as you stated, to an extent that it can be distinctly uncomfortable, and especially as immigrants to the U.S. and as an Indian American. It wasn't until I read this passage from your academic paper that it illuminated some of the Mm -hmm. struggles that I and my other Indian American peers who were raised here would face. I mean, on one hand, we are faced with a culture in the U.S., which is focused literally on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness or rugged Mm -hmm. individualism and personal freedoms. And yet, on the other hand, the cultural backdrop we face at home with our parents or extended family grew up immersed in India or Asian culture is the exact opposite. So it's almost so we have to sort out and reconcile this dichotomy and contrast on our own without even really verbalizing it. But having this dual existence, and so I, this resonates across so many areas, whether marriage, I mean, if you, if you choose not to marry within our culture, but it has a ripple effect. And so I wanted to see if you could speak more about the psychological effects of this both short and long term, and maybe some of the associated dysfunctions that can result if it's not acknowledged or processed appropriately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, there's there's so much conflict that comes up, you know, within families around this issue, and it is, you know, oftentimes, you know, I describe in the paper this the physical realities kind of mirroring a psychological reality as well. Like when I describe what a home might look like, and you know, I remember my 
parents, you know, that I, I couldn't be in my room for too long without them wondering what was I doing up there, you know, as a teenager. And that it's, and I think that's a very common thing. And I find myself doing that with my own kids, actually, you know, that, um, <laughs> that I find myself wondering, hey, you know, that's maybe too much privacy. And, and, I, and I know that's my own internalized value, the cultural value around us being together in each other's presence more. And I think it is a remnant of what a family structure might look like in India, you know, and a traditional family structure, an extended family structure where people are sort of, it's more permeable, those boundaries. It's not so separated and the doors are open physically and emotionally. And so there's this informality that I think is incredibly helpful within Indian families and communities that there's an, you know, in the traditional sense in my family in India that you can sort of stop by your neighbors or you could sort of come in and out, you know, in ways that it's incredibly warm and comforting at its best. And the flip side of that, of course, could mean that a lot of people know a lot of things about each other and uh, in ways that are not always one's choice. And so, you know, if you think about it in the continuum of this openness of boundaries being something very positive on one hand, and then on the other hand, you know, at the other end of the continuum where a person's privacy might feel violated or they might feel intruded upon in some way. So, you know, I think what happens though sometimes in immigration is that we don't tend to think about these things along a continuum. They start to feel almost like they're bifurcated. It's either one or the other, either it's oppressive or it's really nice and warm, you know? And I think sometimes we, if it starts to feel intrusive and not accompanied by warmth and support from a family, then it can have very important implications one for one's well-being, including one's emotional health, that it can start to feel like a person doesn't have choice. Like in the case of someone who might be facing violence in the home or their opinion is devalued or there isn't this kind of recognition that different people in the family might have different feelings and experiences. You know, in those cases, it can be very psychologically stifling for an individual. And, and it's difficult because it's accompanied oftentimes by the warmth and the support too. So it makes it confusing. Yeah. To, and almost feels like if I let my parents down and I'm speaking from the perspective of a a younger person that, you know, if I let my parents down in some way, then there's a deep sense of guilt because of the fact that you also have the warmth and support from those same people who may also feel intrusive in other contexts or in other ways. Absolutely. I know Catholics talk about guilt. Boy, we we certainly <laughs> um, rival them in that regard. I, I agree with you completely. And another aspect that you reference in the paper, which really has a profound effect upon our communities and which I can attest to in my own family, pertains to acceptable forms of separation. And so, for instance, it is common for children to move between extended family households, not only to complete their schooling in a city that might be remote from their parents' home, but it occurred in my family with my older sister. And and as well, my, my dad and his aunt went to live with a relative who 
unfortunately, it it was a violent situation and they were children, but they had no choice. And similarly, my mom had to make a very difficult decision to leave my sister with her parents in India while she came to the U.S. to pursue her medical residency. And, you know, I was, I talked to people about it and they're just shocked. And yet, as she compared notes with others, it's not an uncommon story. Now, my sister joined her a few years later, but this whole concept is just so unique and a norm in our culture. Now, I have to say, I could never do it. I could not leave my newborn child, but I recognize that was a different generation, just one generation ago. And as your publication points out, all of these relocations tend to present occur within extended family structures and movement outside of and away from the family structure can present conflicts about the individual's loyalty and sense of security within the family. And so I just want to see if you had any thoughts on all this. Yes, yes, of course. The And this is very important because it's not that separation doesn't happen within the extended family structure. So there is this traditionally a deep trust of family members, you know, who are aunts and uncles and grandparents and, and that it's okay to move, you know, to move a child from one family who's in one village, for example, to another village, you know, where an aunt and uncle live. It was also not uncommon for children to be adopted by a sister or a brother when that sister or brother was unable to have a child of their own for whatever reason. So there's this kind of movement that is was fairly common within extended family structures. And I think that the thinking behind that is that truly that these other relatives are just as much of maternal and paternal figures as your own biological parents. So it's a very interesting kind of you know, perspective. And in fact, if you look in many parts of India now that there are multiple caregivers for any one child. So it's not necessarily only the mother or the father or a primary caregiver, as we might see it sort of in a more Western nuclear family context. So there was there were many caretakers. And so the attachment that children had to these multiple caregivers was it's it's very different. It's not as though the person may just, you know, have that deep attachment to one parent, but really sort of looking to aunts and uncles as parents as well. And one of the things that's interesting that I've noticed in the last decade or so is that we actually have more grandparents moving from India to the United States to take care of young children in the US. While, you know, so we see a trend of that too. So we have older people migrating to the United States from India who are older adults and coming at a very different time. And they're they're kind of dealing with their own acculturation processes, arriving at a much older stage and age compared to their children. And so the children growing up here with their grandparents have, you know, these multiple attachments as well. You know, some of the conflicts that come up have to do with what they might, you know, suggest in terms of appropriate parenting and appropriate behavior in the home of those children compared to their children and the grandchildren. So there are sometimes multiple sort of multi-generational conflicts that come from those, you know, those migrations as well. But the other thing that, you know, I have noticed in my and learned from my patients that I've worked with is 
the complex nature of those relationships with extended family. You know, that, as you mentioned in your example of there's very positive things to be gained from those relationships. And in some cases, they're also abusive kinds of uh, interactions as well. And I've certainly seen that in patients that I've worked with. And I'm happy to share an example of that from this paper, actually, that might elucidate this further. Absolutely. Um, In fact, yes, both Mina and Sanjay, I mean, I think, and we'll move into that. And I want to say that I grew up, my mom's um, parents lived with us and mm -hmm. it was the most amazing experience. I mean, God bless their souls. They're no longer here, but boy, I mean, it added so much to my siblings and I and our existence. But as you indicated, these joint households are, are so common in our culture and community. And yet I do remember that when there was domestic issues with my mom and dad, that my grandmother was like, uh, just obviously taking my mother's side. But it was just so funny because yeah, it's all sort of grouped together. There's no solid differentiation in the relationships. And and as you stated, it, it, sometimes it works well. And then as we move into this case, or a couple of them, it can go very heartbreakingly uh, wrong. And, and actually, you do bring up that many times because of this concept of dharma and duty, which your paper so brilliantly outlines its connection to this mm -hmm really irrevocable sense of family and intense connection and responsibility. And so what happens is you do push down the conflicting emotions. And so before we get into some of the horrific dysfunctions, you mentioned that it can present as headaches, GI mm -hmm. problems, and a host of other things, which I would add alcoholism, eating disorders, mm -hmm. and a plethora of other things, but just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. In our communities, you know, we typically are taught to not, and not when I say taught, I don't mean sort of explicitly taught, but we're sort of socialized implicitly and sometimes explicitly to not verbalize our distress to other people, partly because we, you know, we're, we worry that we might be burdening them with our troubles. And so sometimes psychological distress is, it presents itself in physiological symptoms, physical symptoms like headaches and leg pain and stomach aches and things like this. And, and certainly um, eating disorders and substance abuse, absolutely, that we sort of act it out versus in our body and through our bodies versus being able to talk about it. And sometimes we don't always have the language to articulate what it is that we're experiencing internally. And so that makes it also difficult to verbalize the distress. And I think sometimes there's a there's a concern among both immigrant and you know first and second generation that others are not necessarily going to understand how we feel. Uh, there's a feeling of isolation too around who can really understand what it is that I'm experiencing. And so that is a very common feeling within our communities even trying to go see a therapist, which therapist is really going to get my family and the way things happen. So if we think about all of the things that we just spoke about so far and the cultural differences and perspectives and the, the structure of a family, these are all things that might feel really foreign to someone who's not familiar with how families work and what families value and what people care about within the communities 
and what those dynamics look like. So, so the feeling that somebody might not understand my experience, it's not something made up or fantasy. I mean, it is based on the reality that there are some real cultural differences, you know, in our background. So these are some, some reasons, some factors that contribute to why, you know, we might see more physiological symptomology than people expressing verbally what's going on for them. Oh, well, thank you. And I am so glad. I really hope to have you back again. Thank you so much, Usha. Oh, I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you so much, Sonia, for having me again. Thank you. 